0: Welcome to the Value-Based Care Perspectives podcast. In this show,
1: award-winning healthcare executive Ronnie Catherpaul will take you on a journey of exploration focusing on the value-based care landscape and healthcare transformation. Here's your host, Ronnie Catherpaul. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Value-Based Care Perspectives. My name is Ronnie Catherpaul. And I am so excited for the topic that we're going to be discussing today. It's a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and I have a passion around. And our two guests today are really on the forefront of this topic. So we're going to be discussing navigation. Some call it different names, but we know it here as navigation. So uh, without further ado, I'll go ahead and introduce our two guests today. Our first guest is no stranger to the world of oncology navigation. She's a very well-known and a celebrity of sorts, if I might add. Lily Shockney has been the administrative director of the Johns Hopkins Breast Center in Baltimore, Maryland since 1997. A two-time breast cancer survivor, Lily has worked tirelessly to improve the care of patients with breast cancer around the world. She's a registered nurse with a Bachelor of Science in Health Administration from St. Joseph's College in New York, and a Master's of Administrative Science from Johns Hopkins University. She has worked at Johns Hopkins since 1983 and has been Director of the Breast Center since 1997. Welcome, Lily. Our second guest today is Billy Lynn Allard. Billy Lynn has over 40 years' experience as a clinical nurse specialist. She has experience working in the ED as an ED director, also as a chief nursing officer, and Director of Population Health for Southwestern Vermont Medical Center. She's currently working in a value-based care demonstration project, specifically with a focus on population health and medical home. She is also a fellow in the American Academy of Nursing and a published author with a book entitled Inspired Healthcare, a Value-Based Care Coordination Model. So thank you, Billy, for being here today, and I'm super excited to speak to you today. So uh, let's kick this conversation off with a real general question around navigation. Lily, can you give our listeners an idea of what exactly is navigation?
0: Yes. So navigation is a very broad term and uh, sometimes it's a misused term, but uh, what it basically encompasses is effective and efficient care coordination for patients starting at the beginning of prior to a diagnosis to getting them in for screening in for then usually biopsy or whatever method is going to determine a diagnosis and then holding their hand all the way through every phase of treatment into survivorship or into end of life. And during that time, navigation and navigators need to be focusing on identification of barriers to care and barriers to treatment. The most common barrier in the United States is transportation. The second most common one is financial, which I think is gonna surpass transportation uh, very soon. Patient education at the level that the patient can understand. Family caregiver education, because they have responsibilities too related to this patient's care particularly when they're taking care of them at home or back and forth for their uh, consults, uh, et cetera, and empowering the patient so that they can actively and confidently participate in the decision-making about their care. We don't want to be doing things to a patient. We want to do things with the patient.
1: That's interesting that you say that in that way. I mean, what I'm hearing in the common theme based on what you were just speaking to is education. Right, and working with the patient and and what we call shared decision making, right, and and having them be part of the dialogue.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, taking this broader topic of navigation, have you been able to segment out the types of navigation, and can you speak to that a little bit? So,
0: when we look at navigation, we have to first look at where did it begin. What was the catalyst uh, for this? And the catalyst was taking place in New York City and Harlem in particular, where Dr. Harold Freeman, who was a breast surgeon back in the 80s and very early 1990s, was seeing that underserved African-American women were coming in with advanced disease and dying. So in most cases, he didn't even get to meet them because they weren't going to be surgical candidates. And he wanted to figure out how they could have women come in because the problem was not coming in for screening mammograms. And if they were once diagnosed, They then didn't wanna come back for treatment. They they were too scared. So fear was, was the primary barrier and misinformation was the other barrier. So he created navigation from the perspective of having community case workers who lived in the community of Harlem, be trained and go out and knock on doors and ask women that lived there, have you had a mammogram in the last year? And if not, why? And I can provide you transportation to come in and I can be with you when you have the mammogram so that we could get women. He could get women in far, far earlier, hopefully with stage zero, one or two breast cancer. Oncology nurse navigation came about through a different route, but was pretty simultaneous. It started off as utilization review nurses back in the 1970s, reviewing medical records retrospectively to identify barriers to treatment and barriers to care that insurance companies of Medicare and Medicaid were not going to pay for. Then it morphed into utilization management where we could talk to physicians concurrently while the patient was hospitalized and inform him or her there isn't enough documentation in the record to justify medical necessity for this patient still being here. The number one cause was delays in getting patients into skilled nursing facilities. So rather than being proactive, knowing this patient needed within the next 10 days to go to a nursing home. They'd wait till the day before and say, well, we're ready to discharge her. Let's get her to a nursing home. And it was a mess because uh, patients on average were waiting 10 to 14 days anyway. So all of those days were not going to be covered. And then finally morphed into what we know it to be today of oncology nurse navigators, beginning with breast cancer. And it started with breast cancer because it's a very large population of individuals with cancer. That's a very strong advocating population as well, that they're going to advocate for themselves and say, I need this, I need that in order to get through this experience and hopefully survive this experience. And it wasn't very long at all after breast was well-established, which was in 1996 and 97. Then it got launched for all types of cancers, beginning with large volume, colorectal, lung, prostate, but no cancer patient should go without having some level of navigation and support for them and for their family.
1: It's a really interesting history, the roots of where navigation took place. It almost sounds like we're coming full circle, where it's rooted in really kind of health inequality and health disparities.
2: And now we we're are. bringing that
1: back into focus. It's, it's very yeah. interesting. <laughs> we we absolutely are. I see
0: people wearing bell bottoms again and I'm like, well that yeah. fits for what we're doing right now because yeah. we're back in the in the 1970s and and it has come for a cer- full circle, but this time it's better understood. You know, timing is okay. everything. Sure. And I think sure. that multidisciplinary teams, no matter what type of patient population they're taking care of, are ready for this.
1: That's right. That's right. Billy Lynn, so let me ask you, in in the work you're doing out there in beautiful Vermont, talk to me about the type of navigation that you're involved with, because it's a little bit different than what Lily's doing in Mm -hmm. her role at Johns Hopkins.
2: So, you know, just to tell you kind of the beginning of the story, you know, we knew that our state was starting to look at getting out of fee-for-service. They were trying to get all of the health systems to come together and be part of one accountable care organization. And I had been intrigued with that direction because as a nurse for a really long time, I have seen healthcare go in the wrong direction. You know, we discharge patients when they're not ready, Uh, they don't understand their medications, they get readmitted, they get sent back home again, and it's like a circuitous route. In the emergency department, I'd see mental health patients come and make up uh, diagnoses that they had chest pain or the worst headache of their life when really they wanted some attention and a warm blanket. And they had a, a whole bunch of expensive tests they didn't need that found nothing and got discharged without having any of their issues dealt with, which were usually mental health or loneliness, no food, no housing. It just, it was broken, the entire healthcare system. Okay. So I was asked, because the inpatient census was going down and more and more work was being pushed to outpatient, but we had clinical nurse specialists on each clinical unit, because we are a magnet hospital, which stands for nursing excellence, and their jobs were in jeopardy. And I was asked to figure out how could we look at value-based payment and think about, is there a way to use them? And I knew exactly the way, which was mimicking oncology navigation. And so we took those masters prepared, really clinically excellent nurses we partnered them with four to five primary care practices and chose the patients that cost a lot of money that were coming in and out of the hospital and we navigated with them across the health system and kind of began for the first time in our careers seeing the experience of healthcare delivery through the patient and the family's eyes and oh my god what a mess and we put together a gap <laughs> analysis of what were the things and that really needed to be fixed. And some were simple and weren't complicated, but it really helped us to kind of make a roadmap of what are the priorities that we need to fix first And those clinical nurse specialists saw those patients in the hospital, had access to the primary care records, so they were bridging the gaps there. They went to see some of them in their homes, uncovered the mess their medications were, uncovered that these wonderful discharge instructions that we were making that we thought were wonderful were in the trash and no one was using them. So we made refrigerator magnets with big letters that said red, yellow, green that told them what they needed to do when certain things happened with their chronic disease management. And right out of the gate, 50% reduction in hospitalizations, 40% reduction in ED visits.
1: So that's amazing. I mean, just something so simple, a, a very simple. simple concept, right? A refrigerator magnet and look at the results that you're getting out of that. So you mentioned a gap analysis and I'm sure I'm curious and I'm sure that our listeners will be curious as well. Can you share a couple of those gaps that
2: you you uncovered? You know, I think it it's exactly what's coming out, what's happened with COVID, the social determinants of health. That isn't what I learned in nursing school. I really, I learned about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and food, water, shelters on the bottom, yet medicine and nursing wasn't thinking about that. And when we got into their homes, they didn't have any food. Or if they had food, it had rotted and was no longer good, and they had no transportation to get to the grocery store. They had prescriptions, but nobody to pick up their prescriptions. Sometimes they didn't have money for the prescriptions. They had saved all the medications they'd ever had, and they were all in a line on their windowsill, and they didn't have a clue which ones to take when. They had two or three doctors who had given them a uh, different instructions. And so they were totally confused. Do we listen to the ED doc, to the hospitalist, or to their primary care doc? They lots of times said they had help at home and we got there and they didn't. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was an unsafe situation. We found that many of them really did need somebody to guide them like Oncology Navigator would but they didn't meet criteria for home care. They weren't homebound, so they couldn't have VNA. Some of the ones who were homebound refused to let strangers in their house. And yet they let the transitional care nurses in their house because we said, we're working with Dr. Jones and he sent us to see you. He knows you're in the hospital and he'd really like us to come and see you when you get home just to make sure you're doing well and and we'll report back to him. And they let us in the house. And that was pivotal. Staunch Vermonters kind of didn't let anybody in the house. And we kind of wiggled our way in there. You know, I think it helped us to then see many other programs that needed to be developed based on the gaps. So, tell me your thoughts here.
0: Yeah. So, I think Billy's done an excellent description of patient-centered care. That we have to look beyond even the diagnoses. We need to look at this person as an individual. And what is their life like outside of this diagnosis that they're dealing with? I think many patients are embarrassed to say they don't have money for their prescriptions or embarrassed that they don't have enough food for themselves and their family, that they live paycheck to paycheck and their credit card bills are maxed out. And that's not going to go away. It just isn't. That that is that not going to go away. The other aspect of this, when we look at a system that's broken, is to also look at how does a patient flow through your system or flow poorly through your system? That many people within the healthcare system made assumptions that they did understand how a patient went from point A to point B to point C. But if you actually, from an operations management perspective, tracked it and said nothing, just observed, and watched, you would then see, ooh, that's where they can fall through the cracks. Oops, that didn't work right. Here's a built-in delay. And those things need to be fixed at a system level yes. so yes. that a navigator isn't serving as a Band-Aid for a broken right. system. Right. But it also brings up the point of patient advocates. These individuals are truly the patient's advocate and having us have the ability to bond with that patient The patient trusts us and we will always be honest with them. And I think that's, that's where the rubber hits the road is that they want honesty. They want support. They want to know that whatever that they say is not going to be shocking or, or diminished or have them treated in, in a different way. That like, I, I would never dream of saying to a patient, well, you've got money for prescriptions, right? You know, that instead I'll say, you know, most people don't have money set aside for prescriptions, and some of the medicines you're going to be on are really expensive. But as a navigator, I have access to discounted drug programs, which I can offer you. And I can also take a look at your household budget, and perhaps we can reallocate some of the money, like your food money. Uh, I have an organization that can provide you food for you and your family throughout your entire breast cancer treatment, which will be nine to 12 months. We can take that food money and apply it for your prescriptions. So it also requires kind of thinking out of the box or what I say for me, for the breast center, thinking out of the bra as to how can we support this patient and think also creatively when we need to.
2: Yeah.
1: And I think what I'm hearing is like, there's not a one size fits all the way that you dialogue with a patient, right? I mean, every patient, you've seen one patient, you've seen one patient. Right. So that, that to me is, is sort of that moral of that story yeah. on how you actually gain that foundational trust yeah. that's going to pull them through this. So that, you, that's, you, again, yeah. so simple, but yeah. really, really rooted in how you actually execute that. Yeah. That knowledge. So wonderful. I want to switch gears a little bit. And you you mentioned something, Lily, about, you know, the system is broken, right? And I know that one of the things that you have been a huge advocate for is reimbursement for navigation, right? Mm-hmm. Which doesn't happen in a fee-for-service environment as it stands now. I think as we move into a more value-based care model and healthcare environment, we're going to see some of that inbuilt. We saw it with the oncology care model. I know that having run a BPCI program as a convener, there's an aligned incentive to do that, but it's done in the payment mechanism. So indirectly in these value-based care programs, you're getting some incentive, but it's not a direct reimbursement. I, mean, I think the challenge has always been that we, how do you adjudicate the success of a navigation program and the impact it's making on the system, right, and, and from both a uh, financial and non-financial aspect, so financial being obviously dollars and cents and non-financially being quality of care. And so I know that the organization that you founded and helps helped uh, kick off the ground AON, which stands for the Academy of Oncology, Nurse, and Patient Navigators, has done a lot of work of late around metrics. Yes. Specifically, how do you adjudicate the success of a navigation program? Can you talk to us a little bit about that and, and that work and, and where you see that work going?
0: So we developed, which took several years, 35 metrics for measuring the impact that effective navigation can have on the health system, on the patient individually, and on the financial picture of the institution. So they are divided into clinical outcomes, patient experience, and return on investment. And some of which Billy was was mentioning, of these patients that ricochet back into the ER, or ricochet all the way into an unplanned readmission, we've been able to identify What are the causes of that? Why does that happen? What can we do to prevent that from happening? So it's being more proactive rather than reactive is is really what what the solution is. And keeping the patient and the family engaged so that uh, we don't get surprised, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, If the patient spikes a fever, they should know immediately what's supposed to happen, what they're supposed to do. And that may require some reiteration. It may require writing things in bold red on the refrigerator. It may require telling multiple family members, these are the things that you need to look out for and what is the first step that you take when this occurs. So rather than waiting for a fever of 103, when the fever is at 100, let's do something because the patient is probably getting neutropenic. Uh, which can result in an ER visit and an inpatient admission if we don't uh, proactively, as I mentioned, address it. We also have an opportunity. I'm a believer in foxhole religion. The patient felt that bullet go over their head and move their hair a little bit. And it really scared them and it scared her family, too. So this is an opportunity for the navigator to ask The family members, when did you last get your mammogram? And for, let's say, the husband, have you had a uh, digital prostate exam in the last year? You see that, or you can smell that someone is a smoker. I'll bring up, you know, lung nodule screening. And they're going to go and get those things done, frankly, because they're scared because they just had a loved one diagnosed with breast cancer. So even though it's not the ideal method, of getting people inspired to do the right thing for themselves, I'll take it because I can get them started on a healthy pathway that right. if they were to be diagnosed with something, I could feel more confident it's going to be early.
1: Let's see. How do you see the metrics play into potential for future reimbursement for navigation, yeah. both so within oncology and outside of oncology, I would yeah. say?
0: Well. I think it's truly demonstrating navigator navigation value. And that it needs to be recognized. And one of the best ways to recognize it is not just saying, gee, I'm glad you're supporting this patient, but to actually have, have it be reimbursable. And yeah. there, there is uh, a lot of work being done in this space right now, not just for oncology, but also, as Billy had mentioned, with, with chronic illnesses. And we need to look at cancer today as a chronic illness. You know, in the past, if I go back 50 years, there was one goal for, for, for a patient diagnosed with cancer, and that's have them survive the disease and survive its treatment that we gave them. And if they survived at the end, then we felt we were successful. That's no longer the only goal, or it certainly shouldn't be. We want them to have quality of life, mm-hmm. not just after their treatment, but also during their treatment. And we want them on a pathway of wellness so that they can happily embrace improvements in lifestyle behaviors to reduce the risk of recurrence of the cancer that they have, but also reduce the risk of getting other primary cancers for which they are uh, certainly at mm-hmm. risk. And for those with, with chronic illness, this too is something they're going to be living with a very, very long time. And how can yeah. we have that individual live in harmony with this disease which is what we're seeing happening more and more with advanced cancers and metastatic cancer patients, metastatic breast cancer patients being one of the best examples. We now have women living more than two decades, literally living in harmony with their disease. And uh, so we need to address it as a as a chronic illness.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a very interesting perspective on that. Billy Lynn, I know that there aren't, you know, any hard metrics around like, for non-oncology navigation at this point in time. However, given the work that you're doing now, I'm sure that you, know, you can call it KPIs, you can call it metrics. How do you adjudicate success for a non-oncology navigation program?
2: For each of the programs that we've developed, and there's about 12 of them, we do have metrics that we use. So it is lots of times readmissions, it's decreasing. We look at six months to a year before the intervention, And then look at how we're doing with that as far as hospitalizations, ED visits. We also look at primary, staying in touch with their primary care doctor, keeping their appointments. We keep track of, you know, if it's something to do with addiction, then we're looking at how long are they remaining clean and staying on the plan that's been put in place. And if it's homelessness, it's almost every single program we have begun to put some measures together. The patient experience is another thing that we do measure. A lot of patients start to listen, start to connect, start to kind of own their healthcare. It's almost like you... You engage them in a way that suddenly they are listening to the education and they are looking at that instruction on the refrigerator and that positive reinforcement can really make a difference. You know, I think with our ACO, we were looking at total cost. And when you decrease hospitalizations by 50% for patients with COPD or patients with congestive heart failure, that is lower cost. And Mm -hmm. so those kinds of things are going in that right direction. I think the one thing that was an aha moment for me, and I'd love to hear if Lily felt that same way as in oncology, is that in my nursing career, we went to school at similar times, Lily and I, and you know we were taught the medical model of care. The doctor tells you what to do, makes the diagnosis, and then we fill in the blanks and make it happen. And I think when we went on this journey as advanced practice nurses, we found that wasn't real, that most of the patients are not doing what they were told to do, and they have no intention of doing what they were told to do. So we need to engage them to come up with goals that matter to them that may align them making better decisions. We need to meet them where they are and try to figure out a way to connect with them in a meaningful way that's going to help them make better decisions. And you know that medical model is not really reality. And without that coordination and that partnership with the with the patient a whole lot of patients are not going to do well. And that is mm-hmm. why the cost of healthcare in America is double other countries yet our outcomes are not showing you know, that that money was invested well.
1: Very, very valid point. Ladies, I want to talk a little bit about Aon and the work that Aon is doing currently in the area of navigation. Obviously, everyone, the the name spells it out, that it's an Oncology Navigation Association. But, Lily, I would love to hear from you and Billy Lynn from you how you both are working towards expanding the support that Aon brings to navigation outside of oncology and even the programs that you're implementing for oncology. There's a certification that has come out over the last few years where um, nurses can get oncology navigation certified. That's amazing, right, that there's an actual certification now. But more amazing to me is how you're looking at expanding the support that Aon is providing in oncology to other areas outside. So Lily and Billy Lynn, I'd love to to hear more. So first I have to say
0: that our organization is 11 years old. We have just a hair under 9,000 members now. So it certainly has grown over a little more than a decade. And we listen to our membership. The majority of our members are oncology nurse navigators, There also are a smaller portion that are patient navigators. These are non-clinical individuals. They may be a lay navigator, survivor navigator, social worker, uh, financial navigator, which is becoming more and more uh, a dire need, no matter what healthcare setting we're in taking care of cancer patients. And they wanted certification. They wanted to have their specialty recognized, and and so did I. So- Mm -hmm we embarked on that and that took about three and a half years to accomplish. I really have projected that it would take up to five years, quite frankly, because I I knew that it was a very heavy lift and a very expensive lift to, to do this. When we built out the exams they needed to be based on evidence-based information so it just wasn't let's make up a question and have five multiple choice answers each each of these questions has to go through a due diligence that is not small potatoes to accomplish and we need to right. change the exam it does you know it it, it it isn't something that is stagnant and as new treatments come about as new uh, legislation comes about, we incorporate that into the next series of questions that are going to make up that exam. Our biggest challenge, but we have overcome it, which I'm thankful for is that we wanted it to be nationally accredited and we accomplished that last summer. And it is also internationally accredited, both the nurse navigator exam as well as the patient navigator exam. And then I serve as the fellow for the commission on cancer of which AONN Plus is a member, and was successful in having them recognize the Oncology Nurse Navigation Certification as an accredited program that they would endorse. So mm-hmm. that that was a, a very exciting day. Needless to say, when when all of that mm-hmm. uh, when all of that happened on LinkedIn, my my page on there, I was noticing that I started getting nurse navigators who would say, I'd like to, you know, join your group. I'd like to to be following you. And as I would look at these individuals, I started noticing that they just weren't in the oncology field anymore. They just weren't, you know, breast and prostate and lung, et cetera. Nurse navigators, they would say, I'm a congestive heart failure nurse navigator. I'm a high-risk OB nurse navigator. I'm an orthopedic nurse navigator for joint replacements. I'm a diabetes, lots of those, COPD. And so I was writing them. I was, of course, accepting them and then writing them back saying, tell me more about, you know, your specialty. And obviously you're interested in learning something from me about what's going on in the oncology space. I want to learn from you what's going on in your space. And do you have a professional organization for you? And that answer was very loud and clear, and the answer was no. So we we did a survey with our own membership, and asked our membership, "Do you know any chronic illness uh, nurse navigators within your institution? And if you do, can you pass them this survey and tell us who they are, etc., so that we can learn more and more and have a bigger n for for the survey itself? And so what we did learn is that there is a lot happening now in this space, and I'm thrilled to see it happening, but that there was not a national professional organization for them. I am not the type of person to sit back and wait for somebody else to do something. My my mother, who's now 93, she says to people, if Lily has an idea that's going to improve patient care, either help her or get out of her way. That's what my <laughs> mother tells people. Yeah. So, so I met with the leadership of the Lynx group, which is our administrative arm of AONN+. Plus. And told them, I think we have an opportunity here to build a sister organization. I don't want to rob from Peter to pay Paul so it would stand separately with the Lynx group also being its administrative arm. But to have very similar layout of what we have accomplished for oncology nurse navigators in Mm -hmm. looking at newbies and how to train them, those that are relatively seasoned, those that are experts having tracks, having conferences every year, and hopefully also mid-year conference, as well as we do with our AONN membership, so that they can learn from one another within their specialty, so that they can learn the grassroots and not have to reinvent the wheel and figuring out, figuring this out, hopefully themselves, but also Help them from a career perspective. What are their career goals? Do they see themselves as a manager over a navigation team in three years, five years? What do you need in order to get there? Because we we want to support them. We also want to make sure that we're not, as I said, reinventing that wheel. I hate to see people doing that as such a rework, as such a waste of time. But that they're also using evidence-based practice so that it's done well. And when right. it's done well, then we know that the patient outcomes are also going to be better. And that's that's, right. that's the bottom line is, how can we support the patients that you're taking care of so that they have the best experience, that they have mm-hmm. the best clinical outcomes? And then let's take a look at value of that yeah. uh, quality and cost.
1: That's right. Billy Lynn, what are your thoughts on an organization to support navigation? at the broader level?
2: You know, I think in our past, it's probably been about seven or eight years that we've been on this journey. And I want to shout it from the mountaintop. You know, when COVID came, we did really well, because we had been looking at the social determinants of health, we knew who needed extra help. And we had connections with folks, we had our biggest readmissions are usually chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. They were so afraid to be in the hospital. They were on the phone with their clinical nurse specialist, transitional care nurses, and stayed out of the hospital. 0% readmission. And we were very successful because we had connected with the community and we're connecting with schools and getting at-risk kids to get connected with their counselors. I mean, there, there were so many things that happened because of the care navigation that we've been doing for the last seven years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that what has been done already by oncology is the blueprint for the future of value-based payment. I think that I'm so happy that Lily found me and I found her. Because I at the KOL, I was
0: looking at what had been published
2: in peer-reviewed <laughs> journals, and there, there was Billy. And I, I think what's really exciting. I was just telling Lily this that I just got off the phone on a WebEx today. Was the kind of unveiling of what Robert Wood Johnson just put together, which is the future of nursing 2020 to 2030. It is all about this. And in fact, one of the things they talked about was figuring out a way to reimburse nursing for the value-added things they do, like navigation. So, you know, it was really encouraging. It talked about letting nurses function at the height of their licensure, which is really what we're doing in southwestern Vermont. And so it it really is exciting. I think the time is now, right. and we're yep. going to do this. Wouldn't
1: well, you say, I that? agree.
2: Yep, I agree, and I
1: can't wait to see what happens. Before we sign off here, Billy Lynn, I would love uh, for you to tell our listeners about your book and uh, just a a quick 30-second overview of of what
2: your book is about and where they can find it. So it is the story of our journey. So the first half kind of talks about the building of the program and what we ran into, where the barriers were, where the challenges were are, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The second half of the book is going over the 12 programs that we implemented, telling how we implemented it, how we were measuring it, and our our hopes and dreams for how it will evolve going forward. So it's kind of a combination of a how-to book, but also Mm -hmm. kind of experiential, kind of helping Mm -hmm. people understand those lessons we learned that could help them replicate it.
1: That's fantastic. And it's called Inspired Healthcare Value-Based Care Coordination Model. And they can find it on Amazon? They can find it on Amazon
2: or also the Sigma Theta uh, might be a little less expensive through Sigma Theta Tau through that website. Okay, wonderful. And And I'll send you a card and you can put that up if you want. That that, has, that sounds
1: great. Um, Lily, tell us about the website for Aon where people can find more information about Aon.
0: Sure. So it's aonnonline.org. And we put our metrics in front of the firewall so that anyone can access it, print it off. We've also mapped it to the Joint Commission standards, to the COC standards and and others, mm-hmm. so that if you fulfill that well, you can you could kill several yes. birds with that one stone very effectively. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that we have a a book as well, a textbook for not just ecology navigators, but also for their administrators, for their managers, with the purpose of don't reinvent the wheel if you're just starting a navigation program so that you'll have an evidence-based oncology navigation. And that's on Amazon. If they type in my name, it'll be one of the ones that it'll will pop up, up early. huh.
1: Wonderful. Awesome. Well, thank you, ladies, for all the work you're doing out there in terms of patient care, in terms of navigation. You're obviously making a daily impact on people's lives, and you know there's a lot of people here that are envious of that, including myself. And again, thank you for being on, on our show, and hopefully we can revisit this subject in, in a little bit of time here and see what progress we've made in navigation. I think it's a evolving topic, and I think there's great strides that have been made and great strides that will be made. And I know the two of you will be an integral part of that. So thank you for all the work you're doing. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in for to this episode. Don't forget to subscribe. And we hope to bring you more valuable content in the episodes to come. Have a wonderful evening. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Value-Based Care Perspectives podcast. To learn more about value-based care and healthcare transformation, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, visit www.vbcperspectives.com.